The following is a sermon from the Edgington Evangelical Presbyterian Church in Taylor Ridge, Illinois. And now, friends, let me invite you to take your copy of the scriptures. And as we have just seen the visible picture of God's grace in the gospel by way of the sacrament of baptism, we remember it uh, from the word of God as well. Take your copy of the scriptures and open with me to Colossians chapter 2. It's on page 984. If you need a Bible, do grab one from the pew rack there in front of you. Last week, we opened up this text as it relates to how Paul was explaining it relative to the first century as we were trying to explain how Old Covenant circumcision relates to New Covenant baptism to say that these two realities are linked to tell us the promises of God in Jesus Christ. And it was always my intention uh, months and months ago to take the time at this point in Colossians to take another scenic route and ask and answer the question, why do we baptize infants? And it is just the wisdom of God's providence that the occasion today provided a visible picture of that same reality as we plan to be uh, on that topic today. So we praise God for His wisdom and providence in ordering uh, the preaching of the Word of God here in such a wonderful occasion. So, uh, we have been preaching through the book of Colossians, and this gives us the opportunity to, to pause and ask a question that I think that far too many people are uncertain of or perhaps don't have the confidence to answer, uh, why we baptize infants. And I am very tempted, as I open up the Bible here and prepare to preach, to say to you, we do so because the Bible says so, and then I'll sit down. Uh, and some of you might be pleased with that tact. Uh, it might be uh, sufficiently brief to say because the Bible says so and that's enough. But we want to explain uh, why and how the Bible says so. So even though that would serve the cause of brevity, it would not be sufficient. So if you've got your Bible open in Colossians 2, let me pray and ask God's blessing upon the Scriptures. And then we will hear it together this morning. Gracious God, we pause now to say that we need the help of your divine Spirit. And we pray that your Holy Spirit would descend upon us to bring illumination of mind that we might understand and know the truth that you have revealed to us in the Scriptures. Lord, we pray that as we search the Scriptures and diligently seek to understand that that same Spirit that abides in us through faith in Jesus Christ might be the spirit of illumination to give strength, to give faith and confidence, Lord, to renew hope. So, Father, by your mercy, speak to us. Give us aid in the reading and proclamation and hearing of your word we ask now in the name which is above all names, even Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. And now hear the word of God, Colossians 2. I'm going to read from uh, at verse 8. Through verse 12, hear now the word of God. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in Him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in Him who is the head of all rule and authority. In Him also you were circumcised with the circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of flesh, by the circumcision of Christ, 
having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. Amen. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of God abides forever. Do keep your Bible open here in Colossians 2. We're going to be flipping through several places, uh, but we'll return back to Colossians 2, so you'll need to be prepared in order to do that. So, as I said, we've been preaching the book of Colossians now for several weeks, even several months, and what the Apostle Paul is doing in the book of Colossians is that he is teaching this church in Colossae, a relatively small, relatively new church, some of the basic elements and truths of the Christian faith in order that they might faithfully walk with their lives in honestly pursuing Jesus Christ as He has offered to them in the Gospel, as they faithfully receive Christ, and so walk in Him as we see this theme throughout the book of Colossians. And what he is doing here, particularly in this section, is he is trying to debunk some false notions of how the Colossian Christians might be wrongly steered away from the truth as he wants to correct false understandings to say that is not true, but this is true. And here particularly in Colossians chapter 2, the Apostle Paul is calling the Christian believers to walk in Jesus Christ in whom they are baptized as they share in Christ's death, burial, and resurrection by way of their baptism. And so last week, we tried to explain that in some detail. But this week, we want to apply that as we ask and answer the question, which is a very basic question, but also a very necessary question, of why we baptize infants. Why do we do this? I mentioned last week, just very quickly, that there would be some who would come to the conclusion that it is inappropriate and even biblically unfaithful to do so. And yet... Here we are, and we've just witnessed that very reality. Have we, have we sinned? Have we erred? Have we made some mistake in doing so? The answer is no, but we want to explain why that is the case. We're going to be doing so across five stepping stones. If you want to follow me along these five stepping stones, as it were, through this pathway to explain why we do this. As Reformed Christians, we must readily have an answer to this question, so let us provide it in five steps. And the first step, as you come back with me in the Old Testament to Genesis 17, go back to the first book of the Old Testament, the book of Genesis, Genesis 17. And there we find in Genesis 17, the first stepping stone that we want to walk on, place our feet upon this truth, that God gives a promise. God gives a promise. That's the first reality that we want to see. In Genesis 17, God first gave that promise to Abram, or Abraham as we know him. And in Genesis 17, particularly at verse 5, Genesis 17, verse 5, No longer, God says to Abraham, shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham. For I have made you the father of a multitude of nations, I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. Verse 7, And I, God says, will establish my covenant with you, Abraham. A covenant is a promise. God says, verse 7, I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. Number one, God made a promise. That promise is a generational promise. 
to be your God and the God of your children and their children and theirs and onward. God made a promise. Number two, that promise came with a visible sign. Affixed to that verbal promise, to the spoken promise, God gives a visible sign. The promise had a sign, and that sign was to be applied to believers and their children. In the same chapter, look at verse 10. God says to Abraham, Genesis 17, verse 10, This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskin, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. God made a promise. Number two, that promise had a sign. And that visible sign communicated so significantly the reality of the promise that the sign can be spoken of as the promise itself. Verse 10, this is my covenant. This is my promise. This visible sign. God made a promise, and that promise had a sign. And God tells Abraham, apply the sign of a covenant both to you, to your household, and all those children born within it. It shall be the sign of the covenant between me and you. God made a promise. That promise had a sign, and the sign was to be applied to believers and their children. That was true all through the Old Testament. Now the point that was inferred last week, but not so explicitly stated, was what's very obvious is that that visible sign was restricted to only one gender receiving the application of that sign. One of the beautiful realities as we move from Old Testament to New Testament is that there is an expansion. An expansion of the promise. An expansion of the sign of the promise. And an expansion of the recipients of the sign of that promise. So, what are the stones that we've walked on? God made a promise. That promise had a sign. And that sign was to be applied to believers and their children. Come with me now into the New Testament. Go with me to the book of Romans. Romans chapter 15. Romans 15. And what we will find in Romans 15 is that Jesus confirmed the promise. God made a promise. The promise had a sign. Jesus confirms the promise. Romans 15. Verse 8 and 9, it's on page 949 if you've got a Bible in the rack and you want to see it. God made a promise. The promise had a sign. The sign was to be applied to believers and their children. Jesus confirms the promise. Romans 15 at verse 8. Romans 15 verse 8 says, For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for His mercy. Paul is explaining there that Jesus Christ came as a servant to the Jews in order to show God's truthfulness to confirm the promises given to Abraham and share them with the Gentiles. The promise that God made to Abraham in the Old Testament is the promise that had a visible sign. Jesus comes in the New Testament to say the purpose of that promise and the purpose of that sign was to point toward my coming. I am here now 
and the blessings promised long ago are now made available to you through me, Jesus says. Christ became a servant to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs. That's talking about Abraham. God made a promise. That promise had a sign. Jesus confirmed the promise. Now we go back to the book of Colossians and we see that the promise now has the sign of baptism. Back to Colossians chapter 2. Or maybe you never left there, but hopefully you're still there. Colossians chapter 2. God made a promise. The promise had a sign. Jesus confirmed the promise. And the sign of the promise is now baptism. As we read in Colossians 2, 11, In Him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with Him in baptism, in which you were also raised with Him through faith, in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. God's promise in the Old Testament had a visible sign of circumcision. The same sign in the New Covenant has a now the visible sign of baptism. As you notice, as you move from Old Testament to New Testament, there is an expansion. There is an expansion of the covenant. It's no longer just for the Jews. It now includes the Gentiles. As the expansion progresses, it's, the sign is no longer just for males. Now it's included to be applied to females as well. When Christ comes, the promises of God blow wide open to include all who would come to Him through faith, male and female, Jew and Gentile, slave or free, regardless of your state of life, God's promise now in Jesus Christ has a visible sign of baptism. And maybe you were trying to keep track of the stepping stones. That's four. Finally, number five, God made a promise. The promise had a sign. Jesus confirmed the promise. The sign is now baptism, and baptism is to be applied to believers and their children. If you're in the book of Colossians, turn to the left with me in the book of Acts, and we'll stay here for the, through the end, just in case you're wondering how much more flipping you might have to do. Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. We're looking specifically at verses 37 to 39. God made a promise. The promise had a sign. Jesus confirmed the promise. The sign is now baptism, and that is to be applied to believers and their children. On the day of Pentecost, Jesus has ascended. He promised the Holy Spirit would descend upon them. That happens in Acts chapter 2. And in Acts chapter 2, the Apostle Peter preaches the gospel to all who will hear. Acts chapter 2 at verse 37 or pick up, sorry, verse 36. Peter says, Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and to the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Meaning, how should we respond to this announcement of Jesus Christ Dying for our sins and being raised for our justification, being raised for our forgiveness and ascended. What shall we do? Verse 38. And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And look at verse 39. If you haven't looked at anything else so far, look at verse 39. Peter says what? For the promise is for you and for your children and for all 
who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to Himself. Baptism is to be applied to believers and their children, just like in the Old Testament, the sign of circumcision was to be applied to believers and their children. So here we are at this point then in Acts 2, where Peter is announcing the reality of the gospel and its associated visible signs. And listen, let me be very kind of brass tacks, foundation level. The Presbyterian who says that it's good and right that we baptize children has a burden to prove from the Scriptures with biblical warrant that it is good and right to apply the sign of the new covenant to the children of believers. And we can do that. God's promise has always had a visible sign attached to it. Circumcision in the old, baptism in the new. But listen very carefully, and I'm going to get a bit cheeky, okay? Just admit it to you up front. The additional burden rests on the person who would deny children baptism. A person who would say it is wrong to baptize children, they have a burden to explain why in the transition from Old to New Testament, the children of believers have somehow radically become excluded from the visible covenant community. And why that is never explained. In fact, the very opportunity that Peter could have taken to say, your children are not included in the promise, is the very opportunity he took to say, the promise is for you and your children in direct citation of Genesis 17 to say, God's promise has always been for believers and their households. The children of believers are included in the visible covenant community. Here in Acts 2, Peter affirms the Abrahamic promises given to Abraham when he says that the promise is for you and your children. So you could understand that in one of two ways. You could understand that in one of two ways. Either your children, believers, on the day of Pentecost, your children who have always been included are now officially excommunicated from the visible church. Peter, if he meant that, would essentially be saying to all the Jews, you have for your entire lives and for all the generation of your family considered that your children are a part of the visible covenant community, but now that Jesus has ascended, they're kicked out. It's only for adults and for when the children become old enough to take it for themselves. That's one option, or Peter means exactly what he says, that the promise is for you and for your children, namely, that the promises of God belong to our children in Christ. That they possess the benefits of being heirs of God's promise. We believe that that is true as Paul draws together the reality that what circumcision represented in the old, baptism expands in the new, and the recipients of the sacrament should be believers and their children. So what should we say about our children by way of conclusion? What should we say about believers' children who receive the sign of the covenant? One, they are included in the new covenant in Christ. When Peter says the promise is for you and for your children, what we did today is say that God's promises belong to Luella. They are hers in Christ. They are yours in Christ. They belong to our children. 
The covenant in Christ is the same in substance with the covenant with Abraham. It's the same covenant in Christ, and they are included. They are included, number one. Number two, the children of believers are members of the visible church. By right of their baptism, they are considered baptized members of the fellowship of God's people. Do you know why we bring the kids up here for Kids Kirk? Not just because they're cute and we like to see them, right? But we're not patting them on the head saying, oh, it's nice that you're here, but you really don't belong here, such that sometimes many churches will send the, churches, the children out of the church in the middle because the really important thing is for the adults to hear uninterrupted the sermon. But we don't do that here. We don't do that here because our children are not just children. They are covenant children. They are members of the visible church. They belong. When Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 6 to give directions to Christian households, he gives teaching to children of believers and he teaches them what they should do as they grow up. We do not view our children as little pagans running around our households. We view them as children of the covenant. We teach our children to sing, Jesus loves me. Because he does. We want them to be nurtured in this, to be recipients of Christian nurture, to confirm the promise given to them. They are included in the new covenant in Christ. They are members of the visible church. They are, in the third place, distinct. The children of Christian parents are distinct. And you might say, in what sense? Well, in the sense the Apostle Paul says so. 1 Corinthians 7.14, he says to Christian parents, your children are not unclean, they are holy, 1 Corinthians 7.14. The children of Christian parents are categorically unique because they grow up being told the promises of God. They are told the covenant belongs to them. They're reared in covenant nurture. They're raised in covenant community. They are distinct. They are included in the new covenant in Christ. They are members of the visible church. They are distinct. And finally, they are blessed. You remember when Jesus says in Matthew 19, verse 14, let the children come to me. Why? Because to these ones belongs the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God belongs to these. And when Jesus says that, He doesn't mean people like this. He means to these. So oftentimes that's explained as we should receive the kingdom of God as children. When Jesus doesn't say it that, he says, to these children belongs the kingdom of God. It's not a comparison, but a category. God's kingdom belongs to our children because as a result, they are blessed. They are included. They are members. They are distinct. They are blessed. So what should we say? We should say to ourselves, we should say to our children, precious one, God loves you. He has claimed you. And you are called to respond to Him in repentance and faith and know who your God is before you even have the cognitive capacity to have memory. We want our children to know that they belong to the Lord. 
So, the gospel is the good news that God claims you by faith. That God's love precedes your recognition of it. God loved you long from eternity before you were able to understand. And that's why the covenant of baptism applied to infants is the most beautiful picture of the gospel. That God's love precedes our understanding, precedes our reception, precedes our cognition, and precedes anything. God's love comes first in your life. It's the first word. And that is a good word. And that is why we baptize infants. So, people of God, believe it. Because the Bible says so. Let's pray. Gracious God, we thank You that from Your Word we are able to draw even such practical teachings such as this. That our children belong to You. And that You have commanded the sign of Your promise to be given to them. And that we might nurture them. Lord, help us to remember that whether they are our children by direct direct biological lineage or whether they are our children in the sense of shared covenant nurture in the church, help us, Lord, to be faithful to our promises, to tell Your Gospel to even the youngest of hearts, that they may believe it their entire lives. Bless our children, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to today's sermon. If you would like more information about our church, or its ministries, please visit edgingtonepc.org. May God bless and keep you.